1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: This episode of Uppo is brought to you by Endy, the 100% Canadian-made mattress. Endy is changing the way Canadians sleep, and their mission is simple, to provide Canadians from coast to coast with the best possible sleep. No gimmicks, games, or hidden fees, just one perfectly designed mattress. The return process during the 100-night trial is super simple. If you don't absolutely love it, they come and pick it up from you and give you a full refund, no questions asked. Go to nd.ca and use the promo code OPPO for $50 off any indie mattress.
1: OPPO is supported in part by HelloFresh, Canada's most recommended meal kit dedicated to making home cooking fun and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh delivers pre-measured and pre-chopped ingredients with step-by-step instructions to your door in an insulated box. So when you get home from a busy day, you get to spend more time doing what you love and less time cooking. Fall into a new dinner routine this season and enjoy the delicious victory of a home-cooked meal with HelloFresh. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash podcast and enter promo code OPPO when you subscribe. From Canada land, this is OPPO.
0: Today we are talking about justice. Justin, the Liberals made a big show of those evil tough on crime Tories. Have they fixed it?
1: I don't know, but I have so many statistics about it.
0: That is what people come to Oppo to hear, us reciting numbers into the ether. (laughs) So firstly, we're gonna take a look at the terrible outrage surrounding the transfer of a child murderer to a healing lodge.
1: And I'll use that as an excuse to tell you about how badly the government is bungling its criminal justice reforms, if we could even call them reforms. You know, something that actually matters.
0: Oh, Callis, love it. Episode of Oppo is brought to you by Endy, the leading online sleep brand in Canada. I actually just received our Endy mattress, Justin, and uh, I already had a mattress, so we actually got a big boy bed for my two year old. oh It's really, really cute. So now we put him to bed and we cuddle him up in a little Endy mattress, and uh, he screams and <laughs> then comes out of the bed. Five or six times, and then I have to bring him back to bed over and over again. But eventually, he cuddles in, and it's it's actually extremely adorable. He's also um, not quite figured out that he can leave the bed at will; like he doesn't have a he doesn't have a crib anymore. So uh, in the morning, he just sits there and turns on a light and starts flipping through a book and pretends to read it until I come and pick him up. <laughs> So he's like, he's got this like adorable little cars booklet, and he starts opening it, and he goes, and he'll do this for like half an hour until finally I'm like, okay, you can leave the bed now.
1: That's very cute.
0: It's it's pretty adorable. I really am not looking forward to him being a teenager. Indie mattresses are made with unique open air cell foam, which provides the perfect balance of comfort and support, pressure relief, and motion transfer resistance. Roll around. Your partner won't feel a thing. I can actually also attest to this. Uh, I've cuddled into bed in this mattress with the little child and I can't feel him moving around until he kicks me in the face. It's great. Go to endy.ca and use the promo code oppo for $50 off any andy mattress.
1: All right, Jen, lay it on me. What are we talking about?
0: Okay, so firstly, I'm going to start this off with a warning. I'm going to get a little detailed here because I think it's necessary for people to understand what this crime was so that they can understand why people are upset about it. In 2009, a woman named Terry Lynn McClintock was convicted in the first-degree murder of eight-year-old Tori Stafford. Uh, for those of you who were memories of this horrible case, McClintock and her boyfriend, Michael Rafferty, lured the girl with the promise of a puppy. The boyfriend then repeatedly raped the child while McClintock played Lookout. They then covered the girl's body in a garbage bag, beat her to death, and left her in a field. This was a pretty horrific crime, and I think that everybody who covered it or watched it at the time was just genuinely heartbroken by it. I mean, uh, Stafford was missing for more than 100 days. And throughout all of this time, there was hope across the country that she would be found alive. And in fact, she had been dead almost hours after she had been kidnapped. This is literally what every parent fears. And I think it's impossible for anybody who has kids to be totally dispassionate about it, to be perfectly frank. It recently came to light that McClintock has been traveled to a healing lodge in Saskatchewan. The healing lodge provides more comfortable living quarters, It's a facility without walls, and I think most crucially, it's a facility that has a residential element so children actually live there.
1: So obviously that murder is horrific, this woman deserves to be locked up, and we can talk about that, but the reason we're actually debating right now is because the Conservative Party has decided to make a lot of hay out of the issue.
0: Eight years into her prison sentence, she's being moved to a healing facility. Mr. Speaker, this is a bad decision by officials. On any calculus, this is a bad decision. And when bad decisions were shown to us as a government, such as we intervened to stop rapist and murderer Paul Bernardo from receiving conjugal visits, we blocked child killer Clifford Olson from receiving pension benefits. Mr. Speaker, when confronted with bad decisions, a good government acts. Why is this prime minister not acting?
1: They attacked the government day after day in question period, and in a lot of cases, you know, started repeating gruesome details of the crime into the House of Commons, which is uncomfortable in and of itself. They then introduced a motion demanding the government reverse Correctional Services Canada's decision to transfer her to that healing lodge. Of course, it's not like the Justice Minister herself signed off on the order. It was you know, basically a departmental decision to transfer her to that healing lodge.
0: Well, just I got to say that if the Conservatives are making hay, I think it's hard to ignore the fact that there is quite a lot of grass on the field with which to make that hay. Yeah, that's fair. So I want to talk for a moment about healing lodges, because many people aren't really aware of what they are and weren't aware that they existed before this particular case came to light. I'm just going to quote from the National Post here in explaining this really briefly. In 1992, Canada passed legislation to allow Aboriginal communities to provide correctional services. This was part of an attempt to improve the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in Canada's correctional system, which is undoubtedly a real problem and something we have to address. Today, there are nine healing lodges across Canada. Most of them are in the three prairie provinces, and there's a total of 367 beds attached to these lodges. I've actually written a couple things about these healing lodges before, and I have a couple of issues that I think I want to bring up with the healing lodges specifically as they relate to this case. I've got essentially four issues with these healing lodges. One is that you know, If you are a big believer in restorative justice, I think the first thing we have to note is that there's pretty limited evidence that healing lodges actually work to do that. Corrections Canada has been extremely reluctant to release recidivism rates from these lodges, but there has been some research to suggest that the recidivism rates for people coming out of healing lodges is actually significantly higher than the recidivism rates of people not Well,
1: no. I mean, that's half true. There's some statistics that suggest that it's either slightly higher or roughly the same as the recidivism rate for just Indigenous offenders in general population in prison. There's also statistics that suggest they're several points lower. So we actually, we can conclude one way or the other.
0: There's a mixed bag of statistics on this one, and Corrections Canada has not been particularly forthcoming in terms of telling us how successful these things are.
1: Yeah, and, and that's totally fair. The statistics we have don't definitely conclude anything, but that doesn't really matter. I mean, part of the reason we put things in prisons to make offenders' lives a little nicer is not necessarily just because we're, we're going to bear it out through statistics. We have libraries and education systems and various you know amenities in prisons that you know are there because we want to treat them like human beings, not because we're trying to force statistical change and recidivism. We you know need to treat people like humans even though they're incarcerated.
0: Justin, nobody nobody here is arguing against libraries and prisons. I'm all for that. Secondly, the, the other concern with healing lodges is that they actually have high rates of escape. It's actually pretty common to see um, dangerous offenders who have high risks to reoffend escape from these um, facilities because they are non-traditional prison facilities with no walls.
1: In deciding to transfer her, they concluded that Terrell McClintock was not at high risk to escape. This was an analysis done before she was moved there. And I don't think there's a, a real fear she's going to you know, escape and live on the land She has no resources to do so. She's probably is not going to get very far. Unless you're an organized crime, you're not going to successfully escape from a Canadian prison for any length of time.
0: There have been people who have escaped from these healing lodges who have committed suicide. There are people who have been Escape from these lodges who have engaged in police shootouts. There are actually examples, several examples of people who have engaged in serious crimes after escaping from these from these healing lodges. I'm actually not opposed to healing lodges in principle. I do think that they in principle they they should be used to help people who are of First Nations background, particularly those who are dealing with um, substance abuse issues, who've dealt with the legacy of residential schools, who've dealt with you know bad parenting, who have lived with abuse. Like I, I'm actually for them in these cases. And I would also be for them for people who have, you know, up to moderate sort of violent crime histories or property crime histories. But there are only 367 of these beds in all of Canada. And I have a really tough time swallowing the idea that McClintock was the most deserving of all of the uh, Aboriginal people in Canada, which, by the way, McClintock, there's some debate about whether or not she's even Aboriginal. We actually don't know that she is. Yeah, it's unclear. So, you know, if I look at all of the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the country, why is one of these 367 beds going to a violent murderer who probably isn't First Nations?
1: Yeah, but that's not really for you to decide. I mean, this was an analysis done by Correctional Services. And this is is part of the problem I'm having with this debate, is that uh, we're all playing armchair quarterback for... uh, you know, correctional services, which ultimately does the analysis of yeah, these well, of decisions. Yeah, well, welcome and, to
0: journalism, Justin. We're always doing armchair quarterback against these decisions.
1: But I think we're stigmatizing these these healing lodges. And 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 you know, you listen to the way the conservative party is talking about this. They're waving their hands in the air, saying, "Oh, this isn't even a prison. These are just you know, um, they call it club fed." you know, it's honestly offensive. I mean, these healing lodges are very important to a lot of uh, Indigenous communities, a lot of First Nations, and a lot of people who want to... Oh, I'm so glad
0: you've brought up First Nations communities because I'm getting there. So the third point that I'm going to make is that it's extremely easy for white middle-class people like us to be pro-healing lodge because these healing lodges are located nowhere near us and never will be. These healing lodges are located on First Nations land, in First Nations communities. And what's so interesting about this particular McClintic case is that band members from the uh, Nikonit First Nations are actually furious that she's been, she's been transferred there. They said that they lost the ability to screen the members of the community who are going to be going to this healing lodge six years ago. They haven't been consulted on this. The band chief said that if they had been consulted on this or had, had um, been part of the screening process, they almost certainly wouldn't have welcomed her to this lodge. So essentially what we have is a child murderer who's probably not First Nations has been transferred to a First Nations healing lodge that has children in it, over the objections of the actual First Nations people who live there and would have to bear all of the risk of her actually reoffending.
1: And you know who's to blame for the changes to the Healing Lodge system? The Harper government, who went after the Healing Lodge system six years ago and reduced its funding. On board.
0: Uh, On board with with shitting on the Harper government for doing all of that. (laughs) However, that doesn't change the fact that what we have now is a Trudeau government dismissing all the outrage on this case on you know ambulance chasers and by the way the conservatives aren't just representing their own political interests when they're being outraged by this I think they're reflecting the emotions of a lot of parents across Canada who are horrified by this but let me put put this to you another way you know, if you had a similar type of offender to McClintock being transferred into a community with a bunch of white kids, do you fucking think for one goddamn second that Justin Trudeau would be dismissing the outrage about that as ambulance chasing? And yet, when you see McClintock transferred to a healing lodge where she's going to be surrounded with a bunch of First Nations kids, all of a sudden, oh, we're all about restorative justice. We're so noble and progressive and evolved because it's never people like you or me who have to bear the risk of this stuff.
1: So that's where you're exactly wrong. Several years ago, the Harper government uh, shut down a program, it was called the Prison Farm Program, where they did release certain offenders onto uh, farms around the prairies in parts of Ontario to have them kind of, you know, work and, and, and get re into the community before the release. And that is a great program. That is literally a program where you had previously dangerous offenders working in predominantly white communities, white rural communities, and that was a fantastic program. It's completely analogous to the healing lodge situation, and the Harper government killed it. So I'm having a really hard time, you know, listening to the Conservative Party, you know, lecture this government on its, its decision to let Correctional Services Canada go about and make decisions on its own when, it, you know, it spent years undermining the structures around programs like the healing lodges, like the prison farm system because, you know, it's very easy for them to point and say these sort of things don't work. They don't work partly because the Harper government took them out of the knees, and that pisses me off. Yeah, and
0: I I actually think that that criticism of the Harper government is totally fair here, Um, but the Harper government hasn't been in power for three years now, and at a certain point, we actually have to start holding the Trudeau government to account for its own actions. Agreed. And if you have an issue, like, if you think that, that, you know, First Nations should be consulted on pipelines, which, uh, you know, by the way, I do, then how in the world do you justify... Putting someone like McClintick, who's a direct potential risk to people in a community, into a-, a healing lodge situation like this over the explicit objections of the First Nations people who have to bear the risk. Yeah, I think that's you- just that's horrendously hypocritical.
1: Yeah, but what we're doing is leveraging outrage about this one specific transfer. If you want to talk about you know reestablishing First Nations input on who does and doesn't get transferred to healing lodges... I'm all for it. But okay, don't use cool, that as an agree. excuse just to go after and, and whip up outrage um, and basically stigmatize these healing centers in this one specific instance. It's a huge problem. And, and fundamentally, it strikes at, um, you know... Firstly, what First Nations w-
0: groups have been objecting against healing lodges for a lot of these reasons for a really long time. It's go- it's, First it, Nations, it predates, that's not it pred-
1: accurate. First Nations groups have not been objecting to healing lodges.
0: Actually, yeah, there's some research that actually suggests that there, there are First Nations communities that do have concerns with some of these healing lodges because of the, some of the reasons I've stated. It's concerns, the First Nations maybe, communities but- themselves who are the most at risk if you have dangerous offenders escape from healing lodges.
1: Which is why they should have input. But indigenous communities are in favor of healing lodges because it allows for a more restorative process where they actually have ability to reintegrate the people back into the communities instead of just releasing people out of maximum security prisons right back into the community, which is the biggest risk of all.
0: Which is absolutely great if the healing lodges actually work, which brings me back to my first point. Where's the evidence that they work? And if they don't work, then how, what actually needs where's to be done Where's the evidence that the reverse the works?
1: No, sorry, where's the evidence? And, and this is what really this is this is the core of the issue what do we want from our prison system do we want a punitive prison model where we just lock people away and treat them as horrible as possible cuz in that case let's just kill them at that point oh, let's that just bring a back capital punishment slippery no, no, slope but seriously argument, Justin. No, no, no that it, is a stupid not. slippery slope fallacy. no no it, fallacy. it's not no no it's no, fundamentally we need to decide what we want out of our prison system Is it just a system where we say, you've done a bad thing, we're going to punish you, uh, so you never do it again? Or are we segregating people from society, saying, listen, you're dangerous, You've, you've broken the social contract, but we're going to give you a path back to reintegration into society? This is why we have parole. This is why we have bail. This is why we have libraries and prisons. This is why we have education programs. This is why we have healing lodges. This is why we used to have prison farms. We had a system in Canada that, for a time, went too far down the restorative path and was letting people out for horrible offenses after two years. And that was a problem. Uh, We've swung too far to the other end. And now we're debating whether or not uh, it's appropriate that people are using the very facilities that we set up to help them reintegrate into society. That is, I I think, a huge problem. I think we need to start talking again about a prison system that helps people get back into society. And if not, let's just say they they are a dangerous offender. We never want them released. We still want to treat them like human beings. Fine, they're never going to leave prison. That's okay.
0: A, that's an absurd slippery slope argument because no one is, no one, least of all me, is saying, like, I think that we should burn McClintic at the stake. Like, nobody's making that argument. That's a straw man nonsense argument. Um, I think that as, you know, as a people and as a society, we owe McClintic uh, humane and responsible treatment in a prison setting. It's naive to think that people wouldn't be outraged by this. It's naive to think it's not a political problem and it's naive to think it wouldn't be debated in in Parliament.
1: Oppo is brought to you by HelloFresh, Canada's most recommended meal kit dedicated to making home cooking fun and convenient. HelloFresh could potentially solve all of the problems I'm going to have this afternoon when I try to make this casserole for Thanksgiving dinner. And have been roundly I've been so roundly mocked because I don't even know what's going in the casserole yet. So lazy. But if I had HelloFresh, each week they would deliver pre-measured and pre-chopped ingredients with step-by-step instructions to my door in an insulated box. So when I get back home from a busy day, I would be able to spend more time doing what I love and less time cooking. Fall into a new dinner routine this season and enjoy the delicious victory of a home-cooked meal with HelloFresh. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash podcasts and enter promo code OPPO when you subscribe.
0: I referred to them as a group of ambulance-chasing politicians or accused them of
1: practicing ambulance-chasing politics. Uh, This is unfortunate that the House has gotten to a place where uh, there is such use of uh, terrible tragedies for political gain. It is something that I will always be clear to Canadians that I hope this House is better then. The Conservatives are terribly upset that I referred to them as practicing ambulance-chasing politics, but if they're upset, it's probably because it stings a bit. Minister, you promised Colonel
0: Justice Can you follow through on that?
1: So, Jen, if you listen to that clip of the Prime Minister defending his decision to call Lisa Raitt and the Conservative Party a bunch of ambulance chasers, you heard me incredulously at the end trying to ask the Prime Minister as he walked up the steps, you promised criminal justice reform. Where is it? And this is – I'm actually really happy we're ta- we started talking about McClintock because this is the thing I've wanted to talk about for weeks, if not months on this show – criminal justice. Now, the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party went into this campaign and have gone into several campaigns over the last decade, promising that it's time to return Canada's justice system back to something a little more humane, a little more Canadian, you know, something a little more in favor of the middle class, I'm sure is probably one of the talking points. But it's been a completely hollow promise. I mean, you know, like many things the Trudeau government originally pledged to fix, they've done very little on this front. The things they have done may even be counterproductive. And this is something I want to hone in on because I feel like everyone in the media and in a lot of cases, both opposition parties have completely fallen asleep at the wheel on this, even though it's probably one of the largest and most impactful things the Trudeau government has done thus far. So, you know, off the top, the government did a couple good things. I mean, you know, you want to talk about uh, Justice Files, you know, they're legalizing pot and it's going relatively well, I think. They Providence managed to break bring... Province
0: by <laughs> <Exactly>. province. <laughs> Some province better than others. Alberta's <laughs> totally, totally looking forward to it. Ontario appears to be a bit of a shit show, so, you oh, know. Oh
1: God, just a complete mess. <laughs> Beyond that, they managed to introduce legislation on physician-assisted dying that seems to have worked pretty great. And they've managed to overhaul All Canada's national security regime. Now, a couple of those files had a bunch of input from other ministers, so maybe that's an explanation of why they went so well. But when it comes to justice, so little has happened that it's actually infuriating. I'll give you one example. I think we've talked about this on the show before, but the government promised to repeal the section of the criminal code that criminalized anal sex, right? You know, the section that is inherited from the old British laws around buggery. They've tried to repeal it now three times and have not done it. They've introduced legislation wait, three wait, different times. Wait, it's still times.
0: legal to have anal sex in this country?
1: It's unconstitutional, obviously. The court has determined that that's Not an okay okay thing for the criminal code to say, but on the books, it is technically illegal to do gay stuff, which isn't great. And the government couldn't even (laughs) fix that. Know
0: that? That's insane. Yeah,
1: Section One Fifty Nine of the criminal code. Also,
0: anal stuff is not gay stuff. Justin, come on now. (laughs) That's
1: right. Everyone can do anal. That should probably be the title of this week's show.
0: (laughs) Everybody has a bum hole.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the government originally promised, you know, progress on mandatory minimums, on improving incarceration rates, or reducing incarceration rates for everyone, especially Indigenous offenders, if you look at the mandate letter for the Justice Minister, it promised that she would enact a series of changes, and I'm quoting here, and the outcomes of this process should include increases of restorative justice processes, where you heard that recently, and other initiatives to reduce the rate of incarceration amongst Indigenous Canadians. The problem is they haven't fucking done that. The biggest thing they've done thus far is a piece of legislation called Bill c 7 and if you haven't heard about it, it's because no one is covering it apart from a couple of journalists here and
0: there. You literally had to like bend my arm to get us to cover it. I was just like, this (laughs) sounds wonky and boring as shit, Justin. I want to talk about Toronto municipal politics.
1: (laughs) So let me give you a really quick overview. I promise I will not bore you all to death with it. Uh, But basically C75 does a couple of good things. It makes bail conditions a little less stringent and lets judges determine whether or not people should be automatically locked up again if they, say, break their bail or release conditions. That's good. Currently, uh, something like a quarter of all cases before the courts right now are what we call administration of justice offenses, meaning that you got drunk when your release condition said you weren't allowed to, or you left your house when you were under house arrest, things like that, things that are not inherently violent. You basically just broke the rules. That is the good stuff. Lawyers are actually very happy about that. That is a very positive change. Unfortunately, that seems to be kind of the end of what people are actually happy about. Beyond that, the government's getting rid of something called preemptory challenges, which is basically where you're able to challenge jurors for no reason whatsoever. Uh, They're eliminating preliminary inquiries for everything except crimes that carry life in prison. That is, lawyers are saying, an incredibly dangerous proposition that can actually lengthen trial delays and make it harder for people to mount defenses of their criminal cases. The legislation also is going to hybridize a lot of indictable offenses. What you need to know is basically it's raising the maximum prison time for a lot of crimes. So you're actually potentially locking people up for longer under this. Uh, And finally, and this is a really scary one that I want to talk about for just a minute, the legislation allows police to enter what they call routine evidence into the record by affidavit alone. That means if you get, say, pulled over by a cop and the cop writes down, oh, you know, I I think he was intoxicated. He had alcohol in his breath, so on. This change allows them to enter that record or an affidavit that they sign into evidence without coming to trial to testify. That means you can't necessarily cross-examine the officer who arrested you unless you actually file a motion and the judge agrees. That is a huge problem. You are actually potentially losing the right to cross-examine your accuser or, or the officer who actually collected the evidence. That is going to open the door wide the fuck open for all sorts of police abuses that we should all be terrified about and nobody's talking about this legislation and jen it's making me sad
0: sorry what were we talking about
1: (laughs) (laughs) i know and this is the problem it's very complicated and it's a lot of ideas that no one knows anything about but it is a huge deal a supreme court uh, last year decided that there are new ceilings on trial delays that means that if you and this is what everyone really should care about as well if your trial proceeds past a certain timeline, uh, the charges can be potentially stayed. That means it, it had already seen accused killers released. On basically a technicality.
0: Well, not only that, but I mean, that goes to one of the other um, liberals' key failings, and that is they've been extremely slow in their first three years to appoint judges. Originally, when Jody wilson verbold the uh, Minister of Justice, was appointed to that position, there seemed to be this intense diversity kick. Like, we don't just want a bunch of old white men appointed judges. You know, we want to make sure that we're we're putting lots of women and people of color absolutely noble, necessary thing to do. But the end result is that it created such a backlog for judicial appointments that, I mean, here in Alberta, we had serious cases that got dismissed because we just literally didn't have the judges to try the cases. So, I mean, it's, it's a really difficult pickle if you're, if you're Judy Rebold and you're committed to these sorts of uh, reforms and diversity initiatives, because you, you have to do this while the whole system is moving. And mm-hmm. there are just some practical realities that take precedence over, over some of your good attentions.
1: It's a difficult pickle indeed, Jen.
0: <laughs> well, and also, I mean, I still think that like, even though like the, the, the Liberals, I think, have kind of abandoned this and have just started making the, the appointments, but I think there are still 45 judicial appointments still outstanding. I mean this is kind of absurd. And right now, I think the delay for a, a trial has been reduced in some places from something like 30 months to 20 to 18. But imagine you're, you're facing a trial. That means you're going to have to wait a year to a year and a half before you even begin this process, essentially. I mean, it's insane.
1: That's not a new problem. Trial delays no, no, have not. been endemic for years. Yeah. And there is some suggestion that a, a lack of judges is, is part of the problem, but that's the thing. It's only part of the problem. It is not the cause. And so the Conservative Party has been quite right in going after the government for failing to fill some of those compliments of judges, but it's not the only reason. I mean, and there's a whole bunch of causes here. Uh, A big one, you know, is mandatory minimums. I mean, you know, we have a whole bunch of cases going through the courts where if you actually had some flexibility on sentencing, people might just plead out. I mean, in a lot of cases, it's not worth it to plead because the mandatory minimum is so strenuous. You're better off just fighting it and hope you get off.
0: Uh, I also want to talk about sex here because uh, the other the other thing, in addition to the mandatory minimums, which I believe was a, the abolishment of was, that, was that a liberal platform promise? I believe it was.
1: A couple of elections ago, but yes. Yeah.
0: In addition to that, uh, we still have the same prostitution laws that have been on the books since 2014, when the conservatives responded to the Bedford ruling by coming up with even more conservative prostitution laws uh, than the the one that the previous Supreme Court overruled. And I haven't seen the uh, liberals make any move to address any of those concerns at all. I mean, when it comes to prostitution, I'm I'm sensible of the pro and con arguments, but my, my own quasi-libertarian bent generally moves toward the idea that governments shouldn't be dictating to grown women how they consensually use their bodies, and that restrictive laws against prostitution probably cause as much harm as they prevent. However, you know, of course, that position doesn't stand to women who have been trafficked or coerced into the profession.
1: And trafficking is always going to be illegal.
0: Yeah, trafficking is always going to be illegal and always should be. However, you know, as far as I would, we're now year four with the conservative sort of Sweden model. And the other thing you were complaining about the fact that, you know, nobody was talking about C75. I think that we've actually totally dropped the ball on prostitution as well. Like nobody's talking about prostitution. Nobody's talking about how the new Sweden model is actually affecting sex workers in this country, and nobody's really putting the liberals' feet to the fire on prostitution bills.
1: You're entirely right, I can tell you, because uh, there's been virtually no coverage of this at all. John Iveson actually wrote a really good thing in in the Post a couple weeks ago. I myself wrote a thing in McLean's about exactly this, and I can tell you I have not been so furious at this government as I was a couple months ago when I emailed Jody Wilson-Raybould's office, to ask about this. I wanted an interview with the minister. I was told no. I wanted an actual answer to questions about what the government had done in terms of consultations on repealing uh, the current sex work legislation. I was basically told no. When I asked why I was being stonewalled or, or why the government was so silent on this, the verbatim response from her director of communications was not in the mandate letter, not in the platform. It was basically... Tough fucking luck, sex workers. We didn't promise you shit, and we're not going to do shit. Uh, and that's the exact tone I've gotten from this government on it. And it's it's honestly abhorrent. I mean, well, you know, it's also I've a talked genuinely
0: a to... controversial issue. And and let's also give the Fine, liberals some it. some slack here in the sense that you know, considering they they they're legalizing marijuana is a pretty radical shift for the country's criminal justice system. And I can understand the argument that they don't want to be taking on. Endless radical shifts of that nature, again and again and again. Like it, it you know, it does potentially politically. Then st- don't
1: fucking run on a platform of real change. Then don't fucking run on a platform of promising to fix all of the ills that plague society, and then run what is fundamentally a incrementalist government that is not willing to do two things at once. I mean,
0: Canada's government is always going to be incrementalist. It'll always happen that way. Um, I mean, you're right. Of course, I know you're objectively right. However, I would say this is that what kind of makes me angry about all of this is the hypocrisy of it. That here you have you know the liberal government when they're not in power they're they're constantly railing against those evil crime and justice stories you know they're they're so awful they're doing terrible damage to our system and yet when they're in power basically they keep the things everything the same (laughs) like they're they're perfectly willing to rail against mandatory minimums and rail against the the conservatives anti-constitutional prostitution stuff and uh, you know adopt these really liberal postures but when i mean this is a common complaint but then when they actually come in power they benefit from the tough crime and, um, justice stances and are completely unwilling to to risk the political backlash of repealing them.
1: Jen, I, I would like to introduce uh, our recurring segment on the show. Where the fuck are the NDP? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jen, Where are the NDP? Jen, where the fuck
1: are the NDP? <laughs> I don't know.
0: It would be, I don't know. I, I, I like having more voices in this debate.
1: Yeah, you think they want to have a voice in this conversation? I don't know. Where with, the fuck are they?
0: Would the NDP like to come on Oppo? I think we should also <laughs> we end in, every we single We invite them Oppo. every show. We're going to end every <laughs> single episode of Oppo by inviting Meet Singh to come on our show. And we'll just do it. Like, honestly, we will sit down with you for an hour. We'll go through it. Let's, let's, let's hit the books, man. Let's come on our show.
1: And finally, I want to leave you with one final, total, complete failing of this government on the Justice File. And it's simply this. Certain types of bestiality are legal in canada
0: but not gay stuff
1: <laughs> no the, the court so the supreme court uh no we don't that your... was just a joke you don't have to get into I... <laughs> it all right jen time for thunder round
0: time for thunder round so justin i went to the uh doug ford jason kenney scrapped the carbon tax rally over the weekend Ooh,
1: how was that
0: Actually fascinating. At first, I was a bit surprised that Jason Kenney and Doug Ford were going to be sharing a stage for a lot of different reasons, because Jason Kenney is a very different kind of conservative than Doug Ford. Not anymore.
1: I mean, Jason Kenney is basically playing Doug Ford karaoke at this point.
0: The the contrast between the two men, even in their speeches, was just so interesting to me to watch, because Jason Kenney gave a pretty on-the-ball, elegant, pointed speech that actually tried to build an argument against the carbon tax, and then... Doug Ford ambled onto stage with a big grin, and his speech was kind of terrible. And I was told yeah. by somebody else in the press corps that his speeches are always pretty terrible. They are, you know, just making mistakes, stumbling. He called Jason Kenny Jason Kennedy at one point. Uh, it actually kind of blew my mind because it was it was a very weak, warmed over campaign speech with actually a lot of conversation about Ontario, which was sort of weird to to deliver in an, an Alberta audience. There are some broader strategic things that I think are happening and alliances that are happening that I laid out in my McLean's column on this front, and I would encourage you to read it. It's pinned to my Twitter profile. Um, I quite like that column. You know, it seems to me that there is a an alliance that is forming at the provincial level between conservative uh, premiers and leaders, and that there is a concerted effort to take Trudeau out with the help of this alliance. And they're going to use the carbon tax as kind of a rallying point to crystallize anti-Trudeau sentiment. That was really interesting to me. And the other thing that was interesting to me, paired with this piece that came out in the post from Stephen Harper talking about the way that conservatives need to sort of responsibly harness populism. To me, this rally was so indicative of that. Here you have Kenny, who is the epitome of an establishment conservative figure, essentially trying to absorb the Doug Ford populism go-go juice for some kind of broader you know national alliance that he's trying to build and i thought that it was it was really really interesting to watch and i'm watching where this goes from here
1: yeah i mean good luck guys i mean when eventually the federal government imposes the carbon tax on all your provinces and you get to be the losing side of the climate change debate have fun <laughs> Jen, I want to talk about Latvia. Wee! You Have
0: always you like involved? the most boring topics, don't you? <laughs> I just, just so, no. so that our, our listeners know, like when the topics are interesting, that's me. <laughs> And when they're wonkish and boring, that's unjust in.
1: Well, that's where you're wrong, Jen. If you've been following me on Twitter this week, you would have seen me obsessing over the current Latvian election. And it's not boring. There's intrigue. There's scandal. There's murder. There's Nazis. It's so interesting. I won't go into all of it, but suffice it to say that the Latvian political scene has been rocked over the last couple of months after allegations emerged that the central banker for the Latvian central bank was basically embroiled in an intense money laundering scheme to help exfiltrate Russian rubles out underneath the sanctions and into Europe. As that allegation came out, maybe fostered by Russian propaganda outlets, basically the whole political scene turned upside down. And in an early morning assassination, a lawyer for one of the central bankers was murdered in his car by machine gun fire. This has been absolutely wild. Latvian politics never gets this interesting. So, why do we care about Latvia? There's two big reasons. First off, they're an EU member state. If certain pro-Russian interests get into government, they could break away from the European Union and potentially lead a domino effect in Eastern Europe. That's terrifying. More immediately, NATO has been watching this with clenched teeth because there's currently a large NATO battle group In Latvia led by the Canadians. I actually got to visit the base a couple months ago, and it was very interesting. Generally, there's optimism about the mission in Latvia, but if this government formation goes the wrong way, things could get weird. So Latvia had an election on Saturday where basically uh, the frontrunners were pro-Russian Social Democratic Party, and in the end, they came out on top. They won the most number of seats in the Latvian parliament. But the whole thing is fractured. We currently have no idea who's going to form government. It seems like there's a pretty good chance a pro-EU bloc could come to power, but they'd be bolstered by far-right nationalists. Alternatively, if they want to try another coalition partner, they could pick another far right nationalist party. So, it's kind of a mess and I imagine that until there's actually a government in place, everyone's going to be kind of nervous about this because it could spell a lot of change for Eastern Europe and if a pro-Russian bloc comes to power, it could give Moscow a foothold into the European Union, which should scare the shit out of a lot of people.
0: But uh, yeah, that's that's less boring than I thought it was going to be. See? That's fair.
1: Machine gun assassination. <laughs>
0: Justin, I wanted to wander off the garden path a little bit with you, because you and Jesse Brown The Last Shortcuts kind of stuck up for me.
1: I didn't mean to. It was Jesse's idea.
0: Yeah, it was Jesse's idea. I didn't know you guys were going to do that. It was very, very kind, but there's a couple things that, and I was kind of debating whether or not I wanted to say anything about it at all. For people who may have missed it, you know, I thought you and Jesse had a very thoughtful conversation about the backlash that I get for doing the show as opposed to the backlash that you get for doing the show. And the way that it's gendered and the way that the tone toward me is much more nasty than it is toward you. Um, And you guys explored why you think some of that has happened and all that kind of stuff. And I thought it was actually a really great conversation. And on one hand, I was really horrified that you had it because I was like, this is only going to make everything worse. (laughs) And on the other hand, um, whether it made anything worse, I'm not entirely sure. But I thought it was a very... Uh, self-aware and conscious conversation for two men to have. And I appreciated that.
1: Love to listen to men talk about women.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> mansplaining abuse that women get online. It was it was basically perfect. But I mean, honestly, we need men to have those conversations and have them in an open way. So I, I thought that that was good. There is like an online bro culture that is about shutting women down. And I think that this bro culture you know, it it spans the political divide. There are progressive men who try to shut women down and there are conservative men who try to shut women down because there are men out there who are just fundamentally uncomfortable with women who try to challenge them. And I just wanted to say to those women who have witnessed this and maybe have internalized it in a way that they didn't realize that, you know, people don't often say this publicly, but privately they see this stuff for what it is. And I would just implore other women who are mouthy bitches like me to be conscious of the way that they are reacting to witnessing this kind of stuff, the way that they might be allowing it to shut them down, even in a subconscious way. Because the end, at the end of the day, you know what? We need more women in the public sphere. We need more women in politics. We need more women in journalism. We need more women who are not afraid to have an opinion. And I don't care if those women are from the left. I don't care if they're from the right. I don't care if they're up or they're down. The only way that we challenge the current culture that exists is by encouraging more aggressive women to come forward and be willing to debate and be willing to offer dissent and be willing to challenge men. And the only way we do that is if we encourage women from across the political spectrum to feel comfortable and safe doing that. In other words, I think we have to normalize aggressive women across the board. And, you know, to men who are engaging in this behavior and have justified it in their minds because they think that the women is wrong or evil or incorrect, I would just point this out to you that, you know, you're you're not shutting me down, but you might be shutting down women who agree with you because they don't really want to get involved in a culture where women get treated this way.
1: That does it for Oppo. We'll be back in two weeks. If you want to send us feedback, you can email us at oppo at You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast. And please don't be a dick.
0: Commons is back next week. And if you haven't given the first episode of this season a listen yet, go download it now. Archie Man takes you on a walking tour of crime in Toronto's financial district.
1: This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And the music was by Nathan Burley.
0: I have the last word this week, and that word is buggery.
1: And I'm going to play you out to the sounds of Romelu Saganash saying the word fuck in Parliament.
0: Adds that, uh, that this... Uh that Canada will not be able to accommodate all Indigenous concerns. What that means is that they have decided to willfully violate their constitutional duties and obligations. Mr. Minister, Mr. Speaker, sounds like a most important relationship, doesn't it? Why doesn't the Prime Minister just say the truth and tell the Indigenous peoples that he doesn't give a fuck about their rights?